You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protean Machining, and this week I am joined by another Dylan, Dylan Tanner of Shank Knives. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, we've talked, you know, on Instagram for a while, so it's great to put a face to the name, and I'm looking forward to hearing your backstory. But before we get there, what is what do you do? What do Shank Knives do? All that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so I am a machinist uh, slash engineer, not officially engineer, but I, uh, I dabble. Um, I like to take projects basically from, from a thought or a napkin sketch to a finished product that you hold in your hand. Um, I think that's kind of where manufacturing is going these days is it's not so specialized anymore. A lot of people are, are kind of covering all the bases. Um, and so I work here at Shank Knives. I've been here for four years. Um, we are primarily an OEM manufacturer and we do knives. We do job shop parts, um, for pretty much any knife company you've, you've heard of. We probably made some stuff for them. Um, and then outside of that, if, if I have extra time, I'll just fill like uh, machine job shop parts that are not knife related. I didn't realize that. I, I, I just assumed that you guys were only making your own knives. How cool. Yeah, no, uh, company has been around since, since 93 officially. Um, the owner's been making knives since, since 65. Um, but yeah, up until probably the last couple of years, we've probably been 90% OEM. And now this year, um, well, I guess this year, part of last year, we're just now starting to kind of push our own brand and, and our own products. Oh, that's very cool. So are you making tooling for other companies or is it more like actual like handles, parts? Uh, yeah, more finished stuff. Um, so sometimes it's a finished turnkey knife. Um, we like to kind of hit minimums of 250 to 300 pieces. Um, that way we can justify sending out for CNC grinding on like a seat mint or a burger grinder. Um, but outside of that, we'll if a company wants uh, just leather sheaths or just profiled blades or profiled handles or any any aspect of knife making we try to do in-house um, and so it's easier to control quality we can we can provide spe- specific aspects of of the process to a customer that's so cool well yeah. let's step it back then how did you get to the point where you're working at shank yeah um so i mean i've i've always loved tinkering with stuff um i've always just been very kind of mechanically minded um when i was a kid we had these windows with like these little crank handles on them to, to swing the window open. And I think I was like eight and I went around and disassembled all the cranks in our house and my, my parents were pissed. Um, but it's, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by, by how things work. Um, and I didn't even know machining was a thing until about six years ago now. Um, so I was working construction, which I mean, kind of works with the, the making things and being interested in how things are built. Um, but I, I had a buddy who I was working with and he got like a little, I don't know if you've heard of Sherline lathes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the tiny little hobby They're They're fairly accurate, but he got one. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever seen like, I guess any sort of machine tool. Um, and he was making little pens with it. And I just thought, wow, that is, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, cause you're taking raw metal and turning it into like a, a product. Um, and then. From there, started listening to to John Saunders and NYCCNC and all sorts of makers in the space um, and seeing what they were doing and, and the tolerances that they were holding. And so I got super fascinated in, in knife making. Um, one of the other guys I was working construction with was a blacksmith. 
So, I mean, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum for tolerance. <laughs> um, but he was making really cool fixed blade knives and he taught me a little class. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, he gave me one of his blanks. He let me finish it out uh, just free. I mean, it, it didn't cost me anything. And I was like, this is cool. Like I have a finished usable thing that I made. Um, it was, I mean, looking back, it was a total piece of crap, but, um, <laughs> as, as most things are looking back. Um, but no, I, I did that. And then through NYC and NYC CNC, uh, learned about John Grimsmo and that whole world of, uh, crazy tolerances and, and all the stuff that he's doing up there. Um, and so I was like, wow, folding knives are awesome. Um, I've been obsessed with, with knives forever. My grandpa, when I was a kid, um, he would take me fishing a lot. And so he was waiting in, in Strawberry Reservoir in, in Utah and found this old Leatherman just in, in the lake and gave it to me. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and just like all the pieces and it folds and all, all how it works. And so that kind of kicked off my love for knives. Um, and then after I found all this tight tolerance machining and, and manufacturing, I was like, man, I want to, I want to do that. Like I want to make those knives. Um, so I was in school, uh, after I got married in 2015, uh, moved up here to Idaho to go to school for like most machinists, um, mechanical engineering, and then left that after about a year, um, to work construction, not cause I found machining, but just cause I ran out of money and, uh, it was working pretty good. And then after I found all, all the machining, uh, stuff went to our local community college here for a, a two-year degree in uh, CNC machines, and it's been great. Um, halfway through school, Shank had ah, uh, let me think. So halfway through school, or uh, yeah, right after my first year, Shank bought a 2017 Haas VF2SS. Um, I don't know why, because like at the time they had no idea what they were doing with it, and they didn't really like have a project plan for it. Um, but it worked out cause they didn't have anybody to run it and there was nobody here already using the machine. So it's like, it's not like I showed up and there's an old guy here, like, here's how you do things. And here's how you, <laughs> here's how you make folding knives. Um, which is, I mean, it's got its pros and cons. Um, but they bought the machine and reached out to the school and, uh, to my instructor at the time, um, and said, Hey, we just bought this machine we don't know what we're doing with it. Do you have anybody that would want to come figure out how to, how to make knives on this? And I had been making knives in class in my free time. And he's like, Oh man, I've got this kid. That's kind of obsessed with knives. Um, wow. So I, perfect. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, it's, it's super lucky. I'm, I'm so grateful that I found it. Um, it's been an awesome opportunity. Like I said, I, I kind of have creative freedom because there wasn't anybody in my position. Um, it's been a lot of learning for sure for that same reason, but it's, it's been super satisfying to, to take what's in my head and just turn it into a product that I can hold. Yeah. That's amazing. So how many, cause you guys have three models that are your own. How much of those yeah. three is straight out of your head? Uh, so our very first one, the wind river is the largest one that frame lock. Um, that was our first design that I, I came up with. And then the second design that we started manufacturing was the Regal. That's the one with the wood inlays. 
Um, that was actually designed by Darren Thomas out of Utah. He's a, a knife designer. You've probably heard of Knife Steel Nerds or Laren Thomas and that whole. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, he's part of that family. Um, and it's it's an awesome design. It sucks to make. Uh, there's like <laughs> 43 pieces per finished knife. Oh, wow. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, it's it's horrible to to manufacture. But when they're done, they look really good. Um, and then our, our most recent design is the Ally, which is another one of my designs. That one's uh, killer. You did a great Thanks, job. man. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Well, very cool. That, that's excellent. I mean, kind of a similar story to my own going to community college and finding your way. And, and I also got a job like at the very kind of middle of my college or community college career and kind yeah. of on there. So that, that's really cool. That's I'm glad yeah. it worked out. I, I, that's, that's something I think that like as a community, we need to push more. Is like, uh, or at least push more people into just like, hey, take a couple machining classes, especially if they're like leaning towards mechanical engineering, but don't really want to do that. Like, I knew so many people who were like, well, I like working on cars, but I don't want to make, you know, mechanic money. So I'm going to do mechanical engineering. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, take some machining classes. Like, that, that's, that was why I kind of ended up in mechanical engineering at the first place was like, well, I like building stuff. I like working on stuff. I guess engineering is the right course and then yeah i took my first machining course i was like oh no no this is the right course like this is where i need to be yeah i mean i was totally the same way because growing up just figuring out how things work i was like oh mechanical engineer like that's who's making all this stuff i didn't even know what machining was um but looking back like absolutely machining and and hands-on manufacturing is like definitely my passion as opposed to kind of being in the background and like someone else is making my parts. Um, no, it's, it's, I'm so glad I found this, this whole community. Definitely. So you started at Shank. How did you learn to design a knife? Cause you know, I, I've done a little bit of design myself on knives and like, yeah. you know, I've talked to like Brad Southard's local to me and we talked, yep. I've shown him some of my designs and he's like, well, they're like interesting looking, but they wouldn't. Work. <laughs> and so like, how did you learn the intricacies of, you know, where to put a, a pivot on the frame lock and, and how to do all of that correctly. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of trial and error and mostly the, the Instagram community. Um, they've been huge. It's the Instagram machinist and knife communities are both super inclusive and people are so open and willing to share, which is not my experience in like every other industry on earth. Yeah. Um, but like even down to like really close kept trade secrets, um, people are so open. Yeah. Here in Idaho, we have a ton of knife manufacturers for, for some reason. It's not like people are moving here to make knives. They just like, everyone's a native knife maker, but we've got Koenig and, and Chris Reeve and all these huge companies. Um, and so when I started making knives, even, even before here, um, I like I'd go over to Boise and, and Tim Reeve was like, Hey, yeah, like come walk through the shop and like personally walks me through the shop. And he didn't have to do that. And he didn't have to like tell me exactly how, uh, on our wind river, we have like a tiny little, uh, eighth inch ceramic ball that, that is the lock face, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of uncommon cause it's the lock face and the detent. Oh, really? um, yeah. And so like if you picture like a 90 degree corner, Mm -hmm. it's set right so like the center line of the ball is right on the axis of that corner oh, and so cool. 
Yeah, it's the detent on one side, and then when it's open, it makes contact with the lock face, which is nice because it's it's a ceramic hardened surface. Um, which is Chris Reeve was the only other company doing that. Um, it's it's hundred percent their design, their their lock design. Um, but Tim was super open. He's like, oh yeah, here's the problems we've had with it, and and here's how you keep the ball pressed in the titanium, and here's the size of ball that you need to use. And I was like, man, that's like super trade stuff like that could totally be proprietary to you guys and no one would blame you for it right um but yeah just how open everyone's been it's it's been so helpful figuring out all these really daunting kind of engineering problems yeah i i've I've noticed the same thing i'm kind of a i won't say closet knife nerd like I, i haven't made it secret but like I haven't made a knife yet, but I would love to. Um, but yeah, it seems like the knife community is, is just as open as the machine is. I mean, there's a lot of crossover there too. So like I talk to a oh, lot yeah. of guys because, you know, they're machinists too and they're making stuff. So yeah, that's, it's, it seems like a great community. And because you, you have, yeah, like you said, you have a lot of knife people in Idaho. Oh yeah. They're, I mean, I'll, I'll find out people that live here in town that I didn't even know lived two minutes away and, <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, I've been making knives for 15 years, and where have you been? I don't know. <laughs> right. That's really cool. And then, so uh, how much did you get to pull from your job? I mean, heat treat and all of that. I'm sure they had a lo- long history of all learning all of those things. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a a different take because the company hadn't been producing folding knives um, up until I got here four years ago. Even on the OEM side, we're we're very hands on. So like all of our handles, we, we had, we have like a four foot by eight foot CNC router. Um, it's kind of a piece of crap. It holds like 10 thou on a good day. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll profile out like G10 handle blanks, but then all that gets glued by hand, rolled by hand. Like everything's hand finished from that point. Um, even most of the blades that we grind, we've got a guy named Hector here that he's been grinding blades for, for 25 years and he's probably hand ground over 500,000 knives. Jeez. And he's just, he's just a machine. Like he'll take, he'll take a hundred dagger blanks, like full two side dagger grind and he'll grind all of them and you can go caliper all the edges and they'll be within like three thou of each other across like a hundred pieces by hand. Whoa. And he's not jig grinding. It's, <laughs> I don't know how it's possible. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's stuff like that. And I'm trying to push us into more like repeatable manufacturing methods. Um, just i mean like if hector got hit by a bus heaven forbid but like right we would lose all that tribal knowledge and all that that manufacturing experience so how much of your current knives your three models is ground by him or you know ground by handler are you doing any pre-roughing on the mills on the blades or is it just blank no um so that's actually something i've been looking into lately is using like a cbn cup wheel in the mill to grind. Um, I, I don't know if you follow booze blades on, on Instagram. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, William is a, a freaking wizard at, at CBN cup grinding and the finishes he's getting are out of this world. Um, but he's super open as well. He's like, yep, here's the, here's the cup I'm using. Here's how fast I'm running it. Here's how deep here's like the angle that I'm holding everything. Here's the tool holder. Like if you have any questions, just give me a call. Like he's super open. Um, so that's definitely something I'm looking into. I haven't started doing it yet. Um, I've got one machine right now and way more production than I can, than I can squeeze through it. 
Um, so it's just kind of trying to figure it out. Even with our own knives, most of what I do still is OEM. And so like I kind of squeeze our own models in on the downtime, but gotcha. And then you went to, was it shot show recently or one of the shows? Uh, blade show West. So they just moved. Um, it was originally in Portland for a while and then COVID they didn't have it. And then 2021, it was in long beach, California. Don't know why they did that. Um, it's weird to put it in like a really restrictive knife. See, no. yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't go to that one. Um, I went to Portland a couple times, but I heard Long Beach wasn't great. And so it kind of put like a bad taste in a lot of the manufacturer's mouth. Mm. Um, but now it's in Salt Lake, which is three hours away and way too convenient not to go to. Um, and Salt Lake's nice because it's, it's really accessible from pretty much anywhere and they have the infrastructure to host people. So. No, that was our, that was actually our first show that we had our own booth at. Um, and it was, it was awesome. It was great. Yeah. Attendance was way better than I was expecting. Um, it, it was super fun meeting people, people off Instagram as well. Just like, Hey, like I know you, but I don't really know you. (laughs) Um, which, which is fun just putting faces to names and, and getting to interact with, with customers and get feedback. It's, it's huge. Totally. Yeah. So how many knives did you guys go with? Like, I, I don't know what the whole. Yeah. So we did. Um, we, so we have like our, our production hunting knives. Uh, we've got like six different models and then we've got our three different folders. Um, and then outside of that, we'll just make like one off custom knives. Um, so we do everything in house. We forge our own Damascus leather work, all that. Oh, wow. Um, and so we probably brought, 25 to 30 customs, maybe a hundred of our fixed blade hunting knives. And then I brought 20 allies. Um, and I sold 15 of the allies and we probably sold 30 to 40% of the other stuff that we brought. That's killer. So yeah, I mean, not, not obviously selling out people rushing to your table, but no, it was, it was good. It was, it was really productive and, and, uh, picked up some more OEM work from that as well. So, Oh, wow. That's super super cool. I'm glad to hear that it went so well. Yeah. Well, let's get into some questions. Uh, Tux garage asked, where do you get your design inspiration from? Uh, I don't know. I really like symmetry, um, on the ally. It doesn't have a pocket clip, which is the first thing that everyone says when they pick one up, they're like, man, you got to put a pocket clip on this. (laughs) Um, and I think I will eventually, but it's just very symmetrical and I I like clean lines and, and all the edges to be chamfered. And I don't know, I don't know. I don't, I don't say I have like a design theory that I kind of filter all of my design through. Um, but I'd say I, I'm primarily focused on building like a functional tool before say like an art knife. Or, or just kind of like a wall hanger, or a, a safe queen. Right. Um, yeah. So did that come from just a hand sketch and then that turned into a CAD or do you start in CAD? Um, I start in CAD um, occasionally if I have an idea, like if I'm just out and about and I have an idea for something from like something I've seen, I'll, I'll sketch something down on, on a napkin or a post-it note or whatever I've got nearby. Um, but no, I've, I use Fusion for all my programming. Um, and I've just been very, very happy with fusion. Um, it's what I learned on and it's, it's what we use here 
because I said so. Um, <laughs> so that's been good. Uh, but no, I, I start in CAD and uh, it's just a comfortable workspace for me that I can make consistent change and see the history of my change, which is convenient. Definitely. So do you guys make all of your own hardware as well? Because like I'm looking at the picture of your three knives and you know, you've got a fairly large and intricate pivot on like the ally. And, um, so is, is all of that in house as well? Uh, no. So on the regal, I do the, uh, so a typical pivot is like a pivot barrel is the little round threaded portion. And then you have two screws on each side, um, on the regal, I've got one screw and then the barrel and the other end are one integral piece. Um, so I make that here, um, out of like a pre-turned threaded round. So it's basically a, a threaded barrel and then another round disc integral to gotcha. one side. And you cut the and hex I'll, and all the... Yeah, I'll cut the hex onto it and, and do the engraving. Um, but the rest of the stuff is from a shop called Tie Connector. Um, uh, Steve Kelly lives up in Montana. And until I get a Swiss lathe, he's... <laughs> he's Hard to beat. Yeah, it's hard to beat. I mean, he holds like like two tenths on concentricity on his threads and, and the head diameter and he's got good pricing. And so until I can make my own, he's, he's what I use. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I, when I first started looking into like higher end knives, I was like, man, why do people like not make all of this stuff? It seems weird. And then, yeah, I started looking at tie connectors website and I was like, Oh, that's why. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. Really <laughs> it's like, Oh, I could spend 60 bucks making like a custom milled titanium screw, or I could just buy a pivot set that's like centerless ground and hardened and perfect from Steve for 10 bucks. Yeah. It, it makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, Tux garage also asked how hard is it inlaying handle materials and how hard is it to cut mother of pearl? Uh, depends on the material. Um, so that's one of the parts where like, even within the community, like there's not a lot of people that are CNC machining weird materials. Um, so like last week I had, I had a mammoth tooth in, in the mill. Don't machine mammoth tooth. It's, mammoth it's horrible. Where do yeah. you find something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of knife supply stores. Um, and some of them sell some weird exotic materials. And so it's like, if you like a, a mammoth molar comes in like a big chunk and you can cross cut it and get all these layers and you can stabilize it with resin. So it's not so chippy. Um, but it, it machines like garbage. It's horrible and it smells terrible. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, some materials, if it's wood, um, depending on the wood, it, it machines really well. So like, I really like machining ironwood, like desert ironwood, which you probably got a lot of down there. Yeah. Um, it machines great cause it's a really dense, consistent, oily wood. Um, and you can hold, I mean, I'll hold five tenths in wood and, and some of these inlays. Um, That's but crazy. then you'll, you'll switch to a different wood. Like mountain mahogany is the worst because I'll, I'll machine an inlay and then I'll leave it overnight and I'll come back the next day and it shrunk like 30 thou, oh. which was horrible because I made boxes. It was for the regal. I made inlays and boxes and I came back the next day and like the knife wouldn't fit in the box because it had shrunk so much oh, and no. the inlays were super gapped and it was horrible. Um, mother of pearl cuts fantastic which really? is yeah which is kind of counterintuitive so you just use a small tool spin it as fast as you can go and then you just run it pretty slow 
and it cuts really clean, crisp, straight edges, and it, it just drops right in. It's it's a wonderful material to work with. That's awesome. And so I assume you run all of this stuff dry. Are you putting any kind of sheeting in the mill to catch it, or? Um, it depends. So if I'm running ironwood, yes, um, I'll run it dry, and then I'll usually just take like like 55 gallon black trash bags and like split them up the sides and then I'll cut like a hole the shape of my vice and stick it over it and then like half inch neodymium <laughs> magnets and just like web off my whole machine um for mother of pearl or g10 or um I mean pretty much any other material carbon fiber I'm I'm running it wet just to keep the dust down um it is what it is. I kind of torture my machine. If my, if my college shop teacher saw the kind of <laughs> crap that I was putting in this machine, he'd probably like kill me. But, um, but now it's, you just keep your coolant clean and do what you can. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Routeco asked, how is the machining and manufacturing industry in Idaho? Um, it is great. It's booming. Um, pretty much any, I mean, in most states it's booming, but pretty much anyone I talk to here is up to their eyeballs and work and probably turning down other work just because they don't have the capacity for it. Um, like pretty much anywhere else, it's, it's hard to find good people to work at all, um, yeah, at any capacity, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is good. I mean, I hired, uh, a student from the year after mine, um, he's an operator here. Um, and he's been, he's been great. It's kind of a weird niche thing that we do. So it's, it's been a lot of training him on that. Um, but no, I mean, we've got just on our, our one street here, we have another knife company. We have like a production Kydex manufacturer. So they do, uh, like holsters and sheaths and, uh, they do some, uh, what's the, I can't remember the name of the other process. Uh, injection molding. Um, oh, cool. So they'll do like gaskets and stuff for, for filters. Um, but they're literally straight across the street from us, which is really convenient when you're doing production knife work and you need Kydex sheaths. Um, and then my other buddy that was also in the, in the same program that I was in at school, um, I think he's Gem State Machine on Instagram. He just bought an Okuma mill um, and moved into the Kydex place. They had an empty bay in the back of their building. And so he just was there a couple months ago and, and he's already swamped. He's up to his eyeballs and work as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's super strong. That's great. How are the like community college programs? Like it was yours pretty well outfitted and staffed or. Um, no. So our program was great. Um, the, the lead for the program, his name is Dave Parsons. He's like a third generation machinist. I mean, the guy's just, a walking machinist handbook. He is, he knows everything. Um, he's worked on, on all sorts of stuff. He's worked at Siemens and, and all these crazy jobs doing crazy parts that, that no one can talk about. Um, his dad was doing, uh, like the, um, on the SR 71 Blackbird, like the back cones that taper the jet stream. His dad was making those pieces. Um, awesome. Yeah. Like working for skunk works, just all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and so he, he was the reason that I had a good experience at school. Um, outside of that, we didn't have, we had like two DM twos 
or DT, what is it? No, TM, TM1, TM2, something like that. Or the Haas or uh, Haas T, TM1, something like that. Okay. Uh, just did they have they, enclosures though? Yeah, they did have enclosures. Okay. Um, so we had two of those. We had an ST15Y lathe that was okay. We had a TL1 from Haas um, and then like an old Bridgeport and an old Ganesh manual lathe. Um, our first year instructor, not so great. We did not get along at all. So my first year of school was basically just like John Saunders on YouTube teaching me how to run all the machines that were in the building. Um, but now second year was, was good. Most of my second year was here at Shank. I just got credit for basically working here full time. I got my school credit. Um, oh, that's killer. Yeah, no, it was, it was super convenient. Um, just having like a full-time job and not having to deal with school. Um, but no, David's great. We still have a great relationship. Um, he's always open to, to fixing all the things I can't figure out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Were they a master cam school? Um, no. So they switched, I think they switched from SolidWorks um, the year before I started to Fusion. Um, oh, really? So, yeah. And so at school, I just started with Fusion. That's all I've ever used um, outside of like messing around on Google SketchUp in, in high school. Um, right. But no, I'm, I'm a big fan of Fusion. A lot of people kind of, give it crap like it's not a real CAD system but I think now it's it is and yeah, it's super I, capable I it's not it you know I, <laughs> yeah I mean it's, a lot of people say yeah they, they, they have poor opinions of it and you know are there issues with it yeah but there is with every single case oh, there's so, issues with everything yeah it's just you just got to find the button to do the thing that you want exactly um, but no I, th I think it's been great um, I think Autodesk just as a company is very very open to feedback and their customer support's really nice. And I, it's, it's a good community that I, I am proud to be a part of. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, Routeco also asked, did you, or do you ever consider or have been contacted for job shop work from the national lab there? Uh, yes. So INL, I, I don't know the actual number, but if I had to guess, they probably employ like 40% of Idaho falls. Um, they're huge. They've got like 900 square miles out in the desert for department of energy research. Um, and so they, any position from, from janitors to ad administration staff to machinists to engineers, they, they hire pretty much everybody they can get their hands on and they pay really well, which is, which is good. Um, but yeah, a lot of their parts are outsourced. Um, they have a specific shop called North Holmes labs here in town um, that they do pretty much everything that they can't get another shop to quote because it's either too complicated or the materials too difficult or whatever it is. Um, but that shop is incredible. They've got a ton of wires and, and sinkers. They've got this huge 16 foot gun drill like lathe and they can run a 5,000th diameter hole over 16 feet and hold it within two tenths straightness. It's <laughs> it's crazy. That's yeah. insane. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, but that kind of shop is like, if they have a part that they need a, a capability or a machine for, they'll just buy the machine for that part, and then maybe it just sits there forever. And 
that's okay because they got the part made. Um, but outside of that, if it's a normal part that another shop can quote, there's a bunch of other shops here that, that almost exclusively do INL contracting. Um, I've been contacted probably twice. Um, it's hard cause we're pretty small. Um, and we can't usually supply the quantity that they're wanting. Um, and then outside of that, they've got like some ITAR stuff and some, some ISO stuff that they require and, and I'm not set up for that. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. And, and very, it's always fun to have places like that local to you. Like we've got Raytheon and the U of A here and like, just yep. see, you know, some of the engineering that comes out of places like that. You're like, oh man, that's, that's neat. Like that's, oh that's yeah. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a, a ton of our customers here in town work out at INL. And so you're always hearing stuff about what they're doing. And, and it's just, it's really cool with some of the stuff that they can pull off out there. Yeah. How cool. Uh, his last question was, what's one purchase you have made or are looking to make that will change your workflow or improve your process? Yeah. So right now, um, we're kind of in the process of restructuring the company. Um, our current CEO is the owner's son, um, who's been running the company for probably 10 years now. Um, and the owner, uh, is getting a little older. He's just planning on retiring. And so we're just trying to restructure everything so that his son has ownership on paper and, and we're able to kind of start pushing the company from handmade production into automated machined parts which is great because I love that. Um, and it gives me the freedom to kind of pick new machines. Um, so right now we've got a VF2 SS um, and then like a number 10 Blanchard grinder. And then I've got an old sharp surface grinder, just a manual. Um, improving our process. I've got quotes out right now for another VF2 SS. Um, my biggest upgrade right now would probably be a new air compressor. Um, Cause right now it's just like a, like, I don't even hundred gallon tank in the corner that just sits at like 150 decibels every 10 minutes. And it's, Oh, it's horrible. Um, and so I'm, I've got a quote out for a a Kaiser air tower 7.5 C I think is what they call it. Um, but yeah, just a rotary, it's got a dryer and a chiller and everything. And it would be amazing. Um, but yeah, another machine, just another spindle. Um, just to, just to keep parts going, I've probably got enough demand for two right now, but we'll, uh, we'll see how we can, how we can upgrade the shop for sure. Yeah. An air compressor, I'd say our air compressor was one of two quality of life upgrades that was just so, so needed and so amazing. Oh yeah. You know, a piston compressor too. And we even bought a supposedly silent piston compressor for a while and they, i mean it they was don't exist <laughs> it was like maybe 10 decibels less or five decibels less and it was like cool yep. but man like especially in the size shop we have it was still just I, like i would go home tired just from noise like just from that, oh, yeah. that constant beating all the time and now it's like you know i can i notice when the compressor comes on but like i can talk over it and like it doesn't interrupt my conversations or make me leave the room if I'm on the phone or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Ours is so much that way. I mean, it, when the, the AirPod pros came out with the noise canceling, I, I got those and now it's like my number one tool in the shop just so I can like function. Um, our building is 8,000 square feet, but it's cut into like four bays. 
And so all the machining stuff is in one bay where the air compressor is. And so that's like where most of my time is spent. And it's, if I didn't have these, I'd lose my mind. That's crazy. So what are your other four bays then? Is it like finishing and then shipping and packing or something? Yeah. So we, well, I guess technically we've got, uh, we have four bays and then we have like a front office area. Um, and so the very back bay is for blacksmithing. That's where we forge our Damascus, uh, tomahawks, whatever. We've got a plasma table and some, some sandblasters and bead blasters back there. Um, and then the next bay is blade grinding, blanchard grinding, um, and heat treat. So we've got two, uh, liquid salt pots for heat treating high carbon steels. And then we've got like an even heat kiln for, for heat treating stainlesses. Um, and then the bay after that is handles. We've kind of got that base segmented into two pieces. So we have like a handle area that's got some like mesh kind of draped over a portion of the bay just to keep the dust down. Um, and all the handles get ground, all the sharpening happens in there. And then the other half of that bay is for leather work. So we have like an old cobbler's machine for shoemaking from the forties. Um, that's awesome. Cause it's, if you picture like an old pair of leather wingtip shoes, like the edge where all the leather stacks and the stitch goes through, mm-hmm. um, this machine's made for sanding and like finishing that edge. And then oh, if you cool. picture a knife sheath, a leather knife sheath, it's kind of got that same stack with the stitch going through it. Um, and it works perfect because you can have all your different grit abrasives set up on the same big arbor. Um, and just kind of work down the line and, and it's great for production. Um, and then after that, we've got the machining and then shipping and in the front office. Okay. That, that's, yeah. that sounds like a, a ton of fun though. Like it, it sounds it's, like a really cool place to work. Yeah, it's fun. Um, we try to do everything in house and so we've got a lot of specific tools and, and capabilities. And so, I mean, half the time that we're sitting up here in the office, we're just spitballing weird ideas for like a product that we'll probably never make, but like, Hey, maybe let's make a prototype and just see what happens. Like, it's kind of fun having all the capabilities in house. Yeah. That's killer. So what kind of, uh, steels are you working with through your blades and what's your favorite, I guess? Um, yeah. So, I mean, on, on our fixed blade knives, um, for our hunting series, we're using LMAX stainless steel, um, from bowler. It's just a super clean powder metallurgy steel. Um, we're probably going to switch to magna cut, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it's kind of the hot thing right now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the other, the other reason we're switching to magna cut is it's, it's us made. Um, and it's a little bit cheaper than LMAX even, um, with, with comparable, if not better performance. And so it makes sense. Um, for the folders on the regal we do, we're partnered on that. So we produce that for, uh, a guy who owns Vegas forge. Um, they do stainless Damascus forging. And so we use a lot of their Vegas Forge stainless Damascus on that one. Um, and then the Ally right now, all the blades have been AEBL. Um, oh, okay. interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, for people who aren't, I, it's if you think of like a disposable razor, most of the blades in a disposable razor are going to be AEBL. Um, it takes a really fine edge. It's stainless. Um, it's comparable to like a 154 CM if if you know any of your steels. Um, and then on the wind river, I usually use L max just cause that's what I've gotten the sheet stock for our other blades. Right. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Who makes Magna cut? You said it was made in the U S is it carpenter? As yeah. Well? Uh, no Magna cut is get it from Niagara. Um, it might, it might be carpenter. 
I, th- I think it might be CPM Magnacut. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's been a great steel to work with. Um, if you're not hand sanding it hardened, if you're doing that, it's <laughs> horrible. It's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're doing the thing that's made to resist. So uh, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. That's cool though. I, I haven't talked to many people who use ABL as their primary steel. Like I know Grimsmo's using it for his lock bar faces and stuff. But, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's really popular in, in chef knives. Um, right. Just because stainless, right. It's not, uh, it's, it's pretty stainless. It's probably a little more stainless than your typical stainless blade steel. Um, but it's used in chef knives a lot because it's really tough for a stainless. And so if you think a chef knife, like wide, really thin geometry, and typically people are like scraping it across a cutting board or abusing it in some way. And so it'll hold up a little bit better to that, to, to chipping and cracking. Um, and it's super cheap. So I designed an ally to be kind of my most affordable knife. Um, and, and that's what I can get a lot of steel for really cheap and it, it works great and I can heat treat it here in house and yeah, it, it checks the boxes. Is it a pretty easy heat treat? Uh, yeah, it's not bad. Um, I usually just, uh, wrap it in like a stainless bag. You can get like little laser welded stainless bags from, from, uh, Centrico. Um, and then you just double fold one side. I'll throw some, uh, talcum like baby powder on the blade so that the bag doesn't weld to the knife. Um, and then you run it up around like 1,975 degrees for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, pull it out, uh, clamp it between aluminum plates and then throw it in liquid nitrogen for a while and then temper it in just like a normal house oven for, for a couple hours. That's really cool. That, yeah. That's a good endorsement. Cause yeah, I've always looked at it as like, well, if I ever want to make like my own prototype knife, that seems like a good cheap way to have some decent characteristics and not spend, you know, a ton of money. Possibly oh yeah. it on something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And then we had also talked over DM and you're looking at pallet systems too, right? Yeah. Um, so f- pretty much for the last four years, I've just been using a, a, like a homemade pallet system. Um, it's pretty much just like a 13 inch by eight inch wide by like inch and a half tall aluminum plate. And I've machined some features on there and then it's got eight pins. So two rows of four going down the side, um, just like three sixteenths dowel pins and then I'll machine pallets, um, and they screw down. So outside of the pins, there's little like threaded steel inserts in the aluminum, um, so that I can screw down on like a flange on pallets that I make. Um, but it's nice. It's worked. It's worked all right. It's worked for what, for what we need. Um, it's not like the most repeatable, um, but it was cheap. Um, when I started, it was just kind of like make do with what we've got. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, four years later, I've got like 80 homemade pallets sitting on shelves and it still works. It still makes good parts and, and that's all that matters. But you were talking about possibly going to Pearson or something. Yeah. Um, so kind of part of this looking at another machine, bringing that in, getting, getting a compressor. Um, we're just kind of looking at ways that we can upgrade the shop. And so, rather than get another machine and build another homemade pallet thing. My biggest problem with it right now is like, if I need another fixture, I have to machine the pallet blank from raw stock. 
And that's just something that I don't want to do. I just want to go online and say, Hey, JP is <laughs> right. like, just send me a right. pallet. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm debating between the orange vices with their Delta pallets and, mm-hmm. the and the, uh, the Pearson pallet system. I think I'm going to go Pearson. Um, I might still get like a dual station orange vice just to sit next to my, my Pearson, um, just to feed like op one. I have a lot of stuff where I'll, I'll hold like a, a rectangle or a square block of material and, and pop some drilled and reamed holes in it that'll mount onto a fixture. Um, and so I think that would be a good, a good flow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wait, so speaking of interesting work holding and stuff, what has been, what do you think are some work holding methods that you use that are maybe not as normal as, you know, clamping in talon jaws or something like that? What's, what's yeah. your favorite? Um, I use a lot of like tape super glue work holding, um, especially with the weird materials. Like I'll get a piece of pearl and it's not a standard, like there's, there's no standard size pearl that you buy. Um, and so, yeah, especially if you're trying to hold small parts or maximize your material, cause if I'm holding like a tiny piece of pearl that cost me 120 bucks, I want to get the most out of it. And so I want to okay. be able to machine off the edges of the profile and do all that. So yeah, super glue tape. Um, I just use the, I think it's the powder coating tape that John Saunders recommended. Yeah, it's green been fantastic. Stuff. Yeah. That, that green stuff. It's like a little bit thicker. Yep. Um, that's been working awesome. We do, we use a lot of super glue anyway from Starbond. Um, and so I use that. They come in all sorts of different thicknesses and viscosities and it's, it's been awesome working with that. Um, outside of that, I used to do the inlays on the Regal. I would, I would cut thin flat strips of wood and then do the tape trick and super glue them all to a fixture and then profile and face them. Um, Chris Reeve knives does, they buy a block of material and then they'll profile the part and then come down with a slitting saw and, and part it off that way. Oh my gosh. I want to do that for everything now. It's, it's amazing. That's um, killer. Yeah. It's so nice. I get, I get a lot of tooling from Mari tool. Um, and they, they have all sorts of carbide slitting saws. And so right now for the wood, I'm running a five inch diameter, 16th inch thick carbide slitting saw. And it's just like the finishes are like dead mirror in wood off of the mill. I can hold super tight thickness tolerances and it, it saves me not having to tape and glue and wait for the glue to dry and like any type of fixturing. It's so nice. Yeah. There's no better feeling than like a one and done part like that. Like I did, I had something come in a couple weeks ago that was like super, super thin, thin walled. And I looked at it and I was like, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think I can tab that off with just like a little key seat cutter and man, it worked perfectly it was like just a thin enough skin the entire way around that i just like pushed on it a little bit and popped off hit it on like uh some scotch bright to deburr it and i was like yep that's it that's the part yeah it's so such a good feeling to just get that done yeah and i mean they're they're just so accurate like on those wood inlays i'm i'm cutting them down to like a seventh thou tab and so it's the same thing you just kind of like push it with one finger and it just kind of tips over and then you can almost just peel the the tab off and almost not sand it. It's, it's been so convenient. It's probably saved me like 80% of the time that it used to take me to, to make that part. That's killer. Yeah. What a, what a workflow too. How cool. Well, that brings us on to shop news and new things. We kind of talked about 
machines and all that, but what else is new? Or if you want to talk about what options you're looking at for your new machines, I'd love to chat about that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, on the new machine, um, definitely want to get through spindle coolant. I don't have that right now. Um, I, I run a ton of small tools, um, down to like 20 thousandths ball mills and stuff. And so through spindle, even if it's not through tool, but just being able to like run it out the call it or through a tool holder or something would just be so nice getting the, the coolant where I want it to go. Um, and then I guess new shop stuff. We, we have shank knives, um, but we're also starting to make golf putters. Um, oh, cool. yeah. So like solid billet Damascus golf putters, um, which has been a whole different beast trying to figure out how to run efficiently like <laughs> inch and a half thick damascus blocks because like right. there's no feeds and speeds out there for that and it's a fairly inconsistent material that just whoops on your tooling sometimes um that's rough is this more of the stuff you're bringing in or is this stuff you're making in-house we're making it here in-house um so we're doing we're doing some of the damascus here in-house and then some of them is out of the vegas forge stainless damascus um, but it's like an inch and a half by inch and a half by like five inch bar and then another piece for the little hosel. But that's been a super fun project to work on. Um, the company's called Vanta that we're kind of starting it. We're still making everything, but we're just branding it separately. Um, and that's, that's kind of the new thing that we're, we're trying to push. Um, it's the golf, especially on Instagram, the golf community I've seen is pretty similar to blowing up too yeah it's blowing up there's a, a ton of content out there for it there's a lot of like olsen manufacturing um tyson lamb there's all sorts of guys that basically just know how to machine and how to machine really nice parts that are getting into this and making some crazy stuff um and it's just a kind of a high dollar high value market and, and people are willing to spend money to to get exclusive or a really nice product so where did that come from? Um, so the company actually started because the owner wanted to make a Damascus putter. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that's probably why they originally bought the VF2 that we have right now um, is him just kind of chasing that dream, um, which up until up until I got here hadn't been realized. Um, but yeah, now we're we're getting some product made and I think he's, he's happy with kind of seeing his, his lifelong goal of, of having a Damascus putter realized. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's also fun just to take a break from, from machining knives all day. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Jump into a whole new, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You actually run like a half inch end mill on something. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. It sounds like you definitely need a new machine then, because if you were already packed to the gills on your one machine, adding oh man, would be tough. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of late nights. If we get really bogged down with stuff, um, I'll start staggering shifts with my other operator just so we can keep the mill running. Um, yeah, we we need another spindle for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of tooling are you finding works best on the Damascus? Um, so yeah, I mean, right now I get a lot of stuff from Martool. Um, 
my problem with Damascus is like I've tried nicer stuff, um, nicer tooling from like OSG and and uh, Helical and all that stuff. Um, the problem with Damascus though is like it's not a consistent material. So even from block to block, the hardnesses are going to vary a little bit depending on how they were annealed. Uh, there might be like an inclusion of like a little ceramic piece of scale that gets wedged between some layers. And so it's like, you might have the perfect tool path and the perfect tool and super rigid work holding and an awesome tool holder. But as soon as your hundred dollar end mill turns a corner and digs into that weird little inclusion, it's just gone. Right. And so it's so frustrating because you'll be like, oh, this, this tool path is dialed. I'm ready to go. And you'll hit go on the, on the second part. And then, then your tool blows up or something goes wrong. Oh. Um, which sucks. And it's hard because you're basically prototyping like maybe, maybe one of those inch and a half by inch and a half by five inch blocks in stainless Damascus, that might be $700 in material. Oof. And so if I, if I blow up an end mill in there and I'm trying to dig little pieces of carbide out of, out of my material, it's like, if I scrap that, it sucks. Like it hurts. That's so, rough. That's really yeah. rough. It's uh, also makes you guys unique. So I understand, you know, wanting to use Damascus for sure. Yeah. It's uh it's stress inducing, but it's satisfying when it does work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest every week, which is what did you research this week? And it doesn't have to be machining related. It can just be whatever you've been popping up. Yeah. Um, so I just watched uh, John Saunders um, video on IMTS Mm-hmm. And the, I don't know if you watched it, but the, the Penta tool co, I think they were pocket NC, but they're like yeah. switching to Penta and they showed like this little tiny five axis machine that they had yeah, at the, the show. Oh my gosh. Like I have machines here, but I still want a machine like at my house so bad. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a cool, like satisfying little machine. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to have like a machine at home that I can teach my kids how to use and like have them grow up with manufacturing, just being like a part of their life and, and knowing that you can make stuff. Um, so I've been looking into that a little bit. I've been looking more into that CBN cup grinding in the mill. Um, I'm not really sure how people deal with the swarf on that. Um, but filtering to the max, like, yeah, but I mean, I'm already kind of torturing my, my coolant and my mill with weird abrasive materials anyway. So I'm like, (laughs) uh, I guess if I get a new machine, I'll probably just dedicate the machine I have right now to all the crap and then save my new machine for like just titanium and steel and, and all this stuff that is healthy for CNC machines. But yeah, but yeah, no, the way to go when you buy new machinery, like our oldest brother until we sold it was definitely dedicated to the stuff that like either a, I didn't want in the other machines or B was kind of sketchy because we had a spare spindle for it too. And I was like, well, worst case I wipe out a spindle and I can replace it. But like, this is the, you know, the low cost machine. So I'll, I'll do it on that one. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've been super satisfied with Haas. Um, it, it gets crap sometimes kind of in the same way fusion gets crap. Um, but, Haas machines make money. I mean, for the cost, um, any, any machine tool manufacturer is going to kind of nickel and dime you on all the options and stuff. Um, I have been looking lately at the, I don't know if you've heard of Sile machines. Mm -hmm. Um, they look also super interesting. Um, I've been looking at their X five. It's like small. It's like the size of a refrigerator and 
I've been like trying to figure out how I could just squeeze one into my basement because I don't have a garage <laughs> at my house. Um, but no, I uh, just, yeah, just trying to get new stuff here in the shop. Um, that C that CBN cup grinding is really interesting to me. Um, I think there's a lot of potential because right now outside of like a surface grinder that you can rig up to do weird things, there's no real CNC grinding method that costs less than like $500,000. Um, cause that's the cost to get into like a seat mint or a burger CNC grinder. That's like made for bevel grinding knives. Um, right. and I think this CBN wheel is kind of the, the intermediate cause you can take a CNC machine and I mean, maybe it is something like that. I'll buy a, a Sile X5 or X7 or something, some smaller machine and just dedicate it to, to blade grinding until I can justify that, that $500,000 purchase for a, a dedicated CNC grinder. That's not a bad idea. You know, buy I, a machine that you can, you're, you're willing to trash eventually or yeah. get parts for or something like that. And I mean, the, the Sile machines look nice just cause they've got the, the epoxy granite castings they're super thermally stable and rigid um but then the other part is like with a hoss if i torch my spindle hoss tech is going to come out here and replace it and it's super expensive but on a sile they don't really have like the whole service at least in the u.s they don't have like a whole service division so like there's no tech that's going to come out but they'll ship you a spindle for like 2500 bucks and tell you how to put it in and so if I, if I get one and dedicated to CNC grinding and maybe I, I torch the ways or, or the spindle or whatever, they'll just send me parts and I can swap it out for pretty cheap and, and keep going. Um, which yeah, is really sure. tempting. Yeah. When I had Daniel Osborne on and he does CNC grinding and his brother. So like, clearly it's not, you know, a 40 taper only kind of thing. Like you can do it in a oh, 30 yeah. tape. Smaller yeah. I've, and, I've talked to him about his process as well. Um, Bill Koenig in, in Boise here does it as well on his, I think he's, I think Dan talked to, talked to Bill to get his stuff set up, but, um, it's, it's super possible. People are doing it right now in, in, I mean, smaller taper machines and getting really good results. And I think, uh, I think it's probably the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, like you said, you can't be beholden to one guy as much as you want to be, you know, as, as much as you, you trust him and stuff. Like yeah. you said, you know what's going to happen. So it's, it's smart to be looking to the future like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, anything that I can bring in house. I'd, I'd like to, um, that's not always a good trait trying to control everything, but as, as machinists, I think we all kind of try to do that and I'll, I'll take it where I can get it. Totally. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been great to get to put a face to the name and, and kind of learn your story. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been it's been great. And thanks to all the Patreon members who make this show possible. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week.